As a nation, we probably have less reason to be optimistic at the start of a new year than many of us can remember. A year ago, the UK had narrowly avoided another lockdown and we were starting to look forward to leaving COVID disruption behind us. Since then, however, we've walked straight into a cost of living crisis. Uh, We've seen prices rising in the shops and at the pumps. Energy prices are forecast to rise by another 20% in April. Many are not looking forward to a happy new year. And spiritually speaking, whether we look at the state of the the nation or the state of the church, it it wouldn't be hard to find things that could discourage us. And given that sense of foreboding that many have, I, I want to turn our thoughts on this first Lord's Day of the year that many of us have been together I want to turn our thoughts to to these beautiful words at the end of the book of Habakkuk. These verses don't gloss over the sort of problems that a new year might bring. But they tell us that whatever happens, those who are God's true people will be able to rejoice in him. Uh, We're going to look at these three verses under two headings this morning. Uh, Saying firstly, whatever happens, God is our rock. Whatever happens, God is our rock. It might never happen. Uh, Has anyone ever said that to you? Uh, Maybe you were looking a bit gloomy or they thought you were looking a bit gloomy and they said, don't worry, it might never happen. Whatever it was Uh, There's no point worrying about it because it it might not come to pass. But what if it does happen? And that is the outcome that Habakkuk is preparing himself for and preparing us for in these verses. What if the worst actually does happen? Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Those, those words, are, they're beautifully written, poetically written, but what they describe is anything but beautiful. It is a nightmare, disaster scenario. In an agricultural society, no food in the fields and no herds in the stalls meant life itself would be under severe threat. Uh, they couldn't go to the supermarket to, to buy supplies. They couldn't drive to, to the next town uh, to shop there instead. They couldn't go online and order, order something for next day delivery. The language is poetic. Uh, but it describes an absolutely disastrous potential situation. Over the last couple of years, we've started to experience what it's like to have one particular food item not available. Most recently, it was eggs. Uh, before that, the shops were limiting how much cooking oil uh, we could buy. Before that, it was flour. But imagine if. It wasn't just one food item every now and then. Imagine if it was, if more and more food items started becoming unavailable. Uh, 
And at the same time, the struggling supply chain just collapsed. Uh, just, just think of the panic buying there would be uh, every day going back to the shops and, and seeing more and more shelves empty. In an agricultural society where you don't have the option of importing food from elsewhere, famine is an absolute disaster scenario. And even in our collective memory in these islands, we still have some sense of the impact of the Irish potato famine, uh, the impact it had in people moving over here, in people emigrating to America. The potato famine, it seems a long time ago for us, but it was still almost two and a half thousand years after Habakkuk. And yet still, even by the mid-1800s, a famine could bring death and devastation on a massive scale. So what Habakkuk is envisaging in these final words of his prophecy, it isn't just a bad year for the farmers, but it's a matter of life or death. It would be a bit like us saying, though energy bills keep rising and food prices double, Though I lose my job and have to leave my home, though my children walk away from the faith and I get a cancer diagnosis, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It would be great to be able to say that, wouldn't it? But maybe we think, well, well it's a nice sentiment for Habakkuk to be able to say, but th- there's a big difference between saying something when those things aren't realistic possibilities and saying it when they are. Uh, and so it will make a big difference to how we take these verses uh, to know whether Habakkuk was actually living under the threat of these things or whether it was all just hypothetical. So, how realistic are these things as Habakkuk writes his prophecy? Well, for a start, for for most of the world's history and still in certain parts of the world today, famine is a very real threat. Uh, Boys and girls, you know what what, what a famine is when when there is no food and and a lot of times people will go hungry because there's no food in the the fields. Uh, For most of history, people haven't had a backup if famine hits Uh, And so to think about crops failing was always a a real and present danger. Maybe it would be a bit like the prospect of a cancer diagnosis for us. Uh, Not everyone will, will get it. In fact, many won't. But it is a possibility we all have to reckon with. And to ask what would it do to our faith in God if we did get it. And for Habakkuk particularly, none of this is just uh, hypothetical. His short book is all about this disaster that God has told, has told him is coming on the nation of Judah. At this point in history, God's people had long been split into two kingdoms. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. About a hundred years before Habakkuk, Israel had effectively been wiped off the map, the the northern kingdom. God had sent the the Assyrians, they'd taken the Israelites captive, they'd resettled the land with foreigners. And God's message to Habakkuk now is that he's going to do the same thing to Judah. If you look back at chapter 1 verse 5, 
God says to Habakkuk, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Verse 9, they all come for violence and all their, fa- all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Habakkuk has started his book by complaining to God about the evil in his own land. And then God says, well, yes, I've seen, I've seen that evil in your land and this is what I'm going to do. Uh, and then Habakkuk complains again because that was not what he wanted God to do. He wanted God to do something, but he didn't want, the God, he didn't want God to send the, the Babylonian army against them. But God says that is what he will do. Uh, and the food shortages he describes at the end of the verse uh, are, are likely what will come as a direct result of that. Uh, famine itself w- was one of the covenant curses which God threatened to bring on his people for disobedience when they lived in the promised land. Uh, so whether it's, it's, it's a famine in and of itself or, or whether it's a, a direct result of the invasion, uh, which is more likely, either way it's, di- it's disastrous news. And Habakkuk doesn't just turn around and say, well, well okay, your will be done. He's in anguish at this prospect. And in particular, he doesn't understand how a holy God could use evil men to accomplish his purpose. Habakkuk knew that his nation was ripe for judgment, but but he didn't understand how God could bring that judgment about through evil men. And so so the second half of of verse 1, or the the third section really of of chapter 1, in our Bibles is entitled Habakkuk's second complaint. He says, verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? But God responds by assuring Habakkuk that even though God will use the Babylonians, that that won't excuse what they do, and that they in turn will be punished for their sin. And that knowledge enables Habakkuk in this final chapter to pray, to pray in the words of chapter 3 verse 2 that God would in wrath remember mercy. And then to make this remarkable statement of faith in the final three verses. But make no mistake, Habakkuk isn't a man at peace where all is right with the world, writing some hypothetical poem about trusting God no matter what happens. Rather, this is a man whose whole world has been shaken. This is a man who's been told that his nation is going to be overthrown. He's looking to a future which is going to be very bleak and very bleak for a long, long time. You can, you can look at the news and see forecasts of when, when, when there will be an economic recovery. Uh, but th- this exile was, was going to last 70 years. And yet out of the, the absolute turmoil of his heart and soul, with, with his whole future 
turned upside down, he writes these amazing words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, I yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and makes me tread on my high places. These are, are well-known words. Perhaps even more famous words of Habakkuk are found in verse 4 of chapter 2, uh, where he says, The righteous shall live by his faith. That's a verse quoted three times in the New Testament. And in a sense, it's the verse that led to the Reformation because of its impact on Martin Luther. Uh, and here, Habakkuk is showing what living by faith looks like. The righteous shall live by, by faith. What does that look like? Well, it looks like hoping in God and taking joy in God when, when disaster comes. And so these are amazing words. But they're not unique. Because Habakkuk is reacting to awful circumstances the way that many of God's people have done down through the years. Some known to us, maybe we, we've seen someone and they've received that terminal diagnosis and yet we've seen their, their hope in God shining through. We've seen them, them witnessing even to, to the doctors and, and nurses right up until the end. Uh, one well-known example uh, happened after the Battle of Ayers Moss in 1680. The Covenanter field preacher Richard Cameron was killed along with his brother Michael. The soldiers cut off Cameron's head and hands uh, and in an act of terrible cruelty they took them to his father who was in prison in Edinburgh. They asked him if he knew them. And old Alan Cameron replied, I know them, I know them. They are my sons, my dear sons. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me nor mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. And that is how, by God's grace, his children react when disaster comes. One helpful question to ask ourselves from time to time is, what is at the bottom of your joy? In other words, what would someone have to take from you in order to take away your joy? Could you lose your, your health, your home, your family and still rejoice in God? Is he at the bottom of your joy? Or is God for you more like, like a cake decoration, uh, something to add on to the top of your life, but, but not really essential to, to, uh, to your day-to-day? -day. For the believer, God is at the bottom of our joy. He is no added extra. Everything is built on him. And so even if everything else is stripped away, the foundation of our lives isn't destroyed. Whatever happens, God is our rock. And you can have that confidence, whatever 2023 may bring. Whatever happens, you have a rock that cannot be shaken. And so firstly this morning, we, we see a man who, who when his world shatters, uh, a man who, who when he's told uh, 
for an absolute certainty that bad things are coming in the future. He holds on to God because whatever happens, God is his rock. But then secondly, whatever happens, we can rejoice in God. Whatever happens, we can rejoice in God. Whatever happens, Habakkuk has a faith in God that can't be shaken. No matter what happens, he's going to keep believing in God. But there's more than, than, than that here, isn't there? Because he doesn't simply say that he will keep believing in God. Rather, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And the, the, there's a pretty big difference or, or, or that, that shows a, a pretty big difference between a believer and an unbeliever. There's all the difference in the world between believing in God and rejoicing in God. The demons believe in God, James tells us, but, but they don't rejoice in God. No doubt there would be a sizable number of people in our town today who would say that they believe in God, but they don't rejoice in him. Uh, perhaps even some here today. You might get excited about football or, or family, friendship or food, TV or technology, holidays or, or home improvements, restaurants or relationships. But do you get excited about God, about listening to him and his word, about learning more about him? We don't tend to need an invitation to talk about what we're excited about. But what are we like when it comes to God? And notice what Habakkuk doesn't say. He doesn't say, I will rejoice in the Lord's gifts. He doesn't say, I will rejoice in the things that God gives me. But he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. The world says to us, as long as you have your health, Habakkuk says, whether I have my health or don't have my health, I will rejoice in the Lord. The true Christian's great hope isn't even simply going to heaven when we die, but it's going to be with Christ. The Apostle Paul didn't say, I desire to depart and go to heaven. Rather, he said, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Even more than our desire to, to go and be reunited with loved ones in heaven, the Christian's great desire is to see their Saviour face to face. When he takes all his gifts away from us, the Christian can still rejoice in God. And at the beginning of a new year, here is an important chance to think about where you stand before God whenever we sing psalm 43 as we did earlier we sing that god is our chiefest joy our greatest joy now that was only ever perfectly true of jesus there are times when even the holiest christians find themselves taking more joy in other things than in god but at our best moments every true christian is someone for whom God is their chiefest joy. It would be possible to say, well, I'm going to trust in Jesus because I want to go to heaven. But do you actually delight in him? 
Because surely it would be a wicked thing to try and use the eternal Son of God simply as a means to an end, as an insurance policy for when we die, to be only interested in him because of what he can give us. So can you honestly say this morning that God is your greatest joy? Could you honestly say, as Paul does in Philippians 3 verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? The true God of the Bible is the most glorious being in the universe. He is the source and centre of all true joy. Not, not to see him as such is idolatry. But amazingly, this, this God, this most glorious being in the universe, he, he delights in us as his people through Christ. And he calls us to delight in him too. So do you delight in him? And it will, it will tend to be shown in your life. It will be seen in what you value, in what you prioritise. To see some of you coming to, to worship, even in the midst of great physical pain, uh, that, that testifies that, that Christ is for you your greatest joy. For others, are you more lukewarm? Do you, do you sing at times that, that he is your greatest joy, but, but it's not so evident from your life? Now, perhaps it doesn't take much to keep you away from worship. But if we are, are lukewarm at best in our commitment to God when things are going well, how can we, we expect to be able to rejoice in him when things go badly? How can we expect to be able to rejoice in God when our world caves in? If when all is going well, our attitude to him is more reluctance than rejoicing, more duty than delight. If we don't cultivate our relationship with him, how will we be able to rejoice in him? And actually, none of the other things in life that, that bring us joy or which we think can bring us joy can give us more joy than God because God is infinite he alone can offer you infinite joy because he is limitless he alone can offer you joy without limits as C.S. Lewis put it so memorably we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And so this new year lean into God. Lean into God, not away from him. Don't ask what's the least you can get away with in terms of a relationship with him. But rather, as Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Maybe someone would say, well, it's all very well talking about the kingdom of God, but I don't know how I can afford to put food on the table. And yet that was exactly the question Jesus was dealing with. When he said to seek first the kingdom. Two verses earlier he said therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. And then he says in words which which should sober us he says the Gentiles seek after these things. In other words if we're running around seeking the things of this world. If the things of this world are what 
we devote all our energies to rather than the kingdom of God, then that's the very definition of an unbeliever. If how you spend your time, your money, what you get excited about it, if they're no different from what the unbelieving world gets excited about, uh, then either uh, you're living like an unbeliever or you are actually an unbeliever. But if deep down you want to, to live more and more with God as your chiefest joy in the year ahead, if what I'm saying to you has awakened something in you, if you desire to follow after him more and more in 2023, how can your relationship with God grow this year? How can your joy in him increase? But well, that's a topic that I plan to devote a whole sermon to next week, God willing. But the starting point today is to make sure you actually have a relationship with him. And not just a relationship with a church or a relationship with God's people, but a relationship with Jesus himself. Have you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, recognizing that you're a sinner and putting your trust in him? If you were to die tonight, would your hope for heaven be not in whatever kind of life you've lived, but only in the fact that your faith is in Jesus? Is your relationship with him the most important relationship in your life? If that's not true for you this morning, then far from your presence here, making you, you more acceptable to God, it, it actually makes you more guilty. If you would come and hear this message and not believe but if you do have a real relationship with God this morning what a reminder we have here that as Christians we have something amazing that those around us don't have we have something more valuable than the entire world we have a relationship with the creator and lord of all we have something that will outlast this world. And so when everything is taken from us, we still have Christ. And we can still find joy in him. And so as we begin a new year together, is he your greatest treasure? Is he at the bottom of your joy? Only if he is will you be able to react like Habakkuk does when disaster strikes and rejoice in God no matter what happens. And just as we close this morning, if the Apostle Paul is right when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that our greatest need is to behold the Lord Jesus Christ, if, as we'll see next week, this is how we grow in Christ, by beholding Christ if our greatest need is to behold the Lord Jesus rather than simply beholding Habakkuk, how do we do that in this passage? Well, Habakkuk, we could say, is an innocent sufferer. The nation of Judah have sinned badly against God, but, but we know that Habakkuk stood out as different because he starts this book by, by complaining about the sin of his nation. And yet... He is still going to be caught up in the coming judgment. He's not talking here about a judgment that will come on others, but not on him. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk will suffer even though he himself is innocent. 
He is a sinner, of course, but if the rest of the nation had been like him, there would have been no need for God to send the Babylonians. Habakkuk is an innocent sufferer, and Jesus too is an innocent sufferer, a truly innocent sufferer. But unlike Habakkuk, Jesus didn't suffer as part of God's people. Rather, he suffered for God's people. Unlike the the suffering uh, that Habakkuk's nation would face, Jesus' suffering would bring about redemption because it would bring salvation, it would bring new life. It would bring for his people a new relationship with God through him, which would give us the desire to seek first his kingdom because he is our greatest joy. And whatever happens in life, no one can take that from us. As the Apostle Paul would put it in his version of Habakkuk's fig tree speech. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by God's grace may we start a new year with the same confidence. Amen. Well, when Habakkuk says that he will rejoice in God, it could be translated as exult in God. And we have the the same word in Psalm 28. Psalm 28, we'll sing the the first verse on page 1. And then turn over and sing the last three verses on page 52. Verse 1 describes the worst disaster a Christian can face. Not famine or financial ruin or terminal diagnosis, but a silent God. On the cross, our Lord's greatest anguish was when he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? But at the end of the psalm, the answer comes, and we sing verse 6, page 52, Praise to the Lord, for he has heard the plea for mercy which I made. The Lord my strength is and my shield, I trust in him who sends me aid. Therefore my heart is full of joy, my thanks to him I gladly sing. And then notice the last two lines of verse 7. God's people don't rejoice in his gifts, but in God himself, the Lord, he is his people's strength, a saving fortress for his king. This is our God, a God who delights in us and invites us, commands us to delight in him. Psalm 28 verse 1 and then 6 to the end we'll stand to sing. <laughs>